You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience here on Westwood One. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, to kick off a new week, February. My gosh, February's almost gone. I'm just looking at my calendar here. It's February 26th. We're recording today, Monday afternoon. And what, it's been about two months into 2018, and Republicans have done zip in Congress. Well, I should actually preface that by saying they've done plenty in Congress, um, all liberal. They've done nothing conservative, despite controlling all three branches of government, and despite staring down the barrel of not an AR-14 or an AR-15 or an AR-16, but a complete D-plus-15 generic ballot gap for the midterm election. So you'd think they'd want some sort of political narrative to run on, but of course nothing. Anyway, watching CPAC, you know, as you know, I I don't show up to it and I'm glad I didn't, um, despite the fact that there's some good people there I wish I would have met. But I had some of the speeches on from the president, the vice president, some others while I was working in my office. And I already knew on Friday what I wanted to talk about today. And I was chomping at the bit to do so. I wanted to talk about the political morphine that conservatives numb themselves with, this false illusion of victories and this false dichotomy of, well, the Democrats will always be worse, and we make a a list of accomplishments. Well, the Democrats forced us to get two sex change operations, and Republicans would only do one, so that's a big reason to vote Republican, and obfuscate the issues that we truly need to focus on, the progress we truly need to make because we're not making it. And the more the left moves us all to the left and the more we try to put somewhat of a distance between each other, the more we we continue to lose. And then immediately stuff broke out with the courts to demonstrate this point. And I want to tie this all together. You know, for those of you that are somewhat new to the conservative conscience, what I like to do with most of the shows here is to give you an update on what's truly going on on a lot of very important issues ignored by the conservative media, certainly the liberal media, but also to give you a general foundational thesis in in public policy in general, what's going on, what we should be doing, and how the specific issues of the day ties into that broad theme. So my hope is that after today's show, you'll get a very deep understanding of what exactly our agenda is is here at Conservative Review, at the Conservative Conscience here on Westwood One, and what we're trying to do. And today I'm going to talk about the courts and immigration, as you know, my favorite topic, because that is the single biggest kill shot on this country, and how it ties into this political numbness from conservatives that we saw at CPAC. So I was watching speech after speech, and most evident with the president's speech, the vice president's speech, there's this talking point. Neil Gorsuch, record number of conservative judges picked, regulatory reform, this whole litany of stuff that's good. And I'm not making fun out of it, moving the embassy to to Jerusalem, all these things. 
And the problem was that everything he was saying, I had a counterpoint to. That if you look broadly on the discernible policy outcomes, okay, the DPOs, the left is winning beyond belief, even with Republicans in control of all three branches, and no one's even focusing on it. And we just latch on to these very myopic measures, very small, limited measures of success that, you know, it's important to point out, and I don't mind it, but the problem is when that's used as political morphine, you know, I call it the opioid crisis of the conservative movement, to dull our senses, to prevent us from asserting ourselves over what we can and should be accomplishing and over the real threats that, you know, for every step forward we we move, we go back 10 steps that we're ignoring. I don't do this to be negative. I do this because I believe, as I've said many times, the first step in recognizing this, uh, the, in, in addressing a problem and finding a solution is first recognizing the severity, the extent, the depth of the problem itself. And when I, when I hear all this stuff, just ignoring the fact, and I have an article out we'll link to in show notes on Friday, and I published it in response to Trump's speech, that when it comes to health care and the debt and spending, some of the biggest issues of our time, with the, the, the real deficit for last year, it turns out, was not $666 billion. It was $1.2 trillion. We're spending more money than when Democrats were in charge, when, when Obama was in charge. And now with interest rates rising, the debt is a real problem now. It's a big part of why we can't enjoy. You know, we haven't had a period of prosperity really since 2005 and some measures since the late 90s. The longest time we've gone without a period of boom of prosperity in the business cycle, despite having that deep recession. And I say that because historically, since World War II, the deeper the recession, the more robust the recovery, and we, we were missing that. And now we're finally getting that, but it's getting mitigated. And you saw that with the stock market crash, um, and you're seeing with the angst over interest rates, and it's all directly or indirectly related to the growing debt and the crushing interest payments on the debt. It's distorting our allocation of resources. It's distorting our equities markets. Um, and it's, it's just an albatross across around the neck of the economy. On any meaningful measure, we're moving backwards, backwards. But you, the problem is, here's the paradox you all need to understand. Precisely because the left is more evil, extreme, demented, and unhinged than ever before. While it's moving the Republicans simultaneously to the left as well, it's also very easy and very superficially evident to point out differences. Well, gosh, Daniel, if the Democrats were in charge, I mean, we'd have even worse judges. We'd have even worse immigration policy. We'd have even more. Like, that's all true on some myopic level. But what that does is it creates the soft bigotry of low expectations. It lowers our expectations of conservative governance to such an extent that, you know, on 50 measures, Republicans could get 50 things easily done. Well, they do one or two things and then go backwards on 45 things like, well, Daniel, don't be greedy here. You know, at least we had this and this. We're moving the embassy to Jerusalem. And look, you know, I'm a Zionist. 
You know where I stand on the Israel issue. I care deeply about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, our country is being destroyed. You know, so you move the embassy to Jerusalem, lovely. And even then, by the way, the 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 main component is to finally end the stupid Oslo Accords that were placing our entire um, diplomatic capital in creating a Palestinian state. Now, Trump's been headed, headed in general in a very d- good direction on that issue. But, you know, there are some disagreements in the administration. So let's see how that turns out. I mean, moving our embassy to Jerusalem, I mean, again, I, I believe in it. I support it. It is one of the few things that objectively we're moving forward on that we've never done before, as opposed to many other things. They're all relative. It's just we're actually moving backwards, albeit not as much as it would have been had Hillary won. But still, I mean, is that an excuse for you know ignoring the malfeasance on, on health care, on immigration, on debt, on the judiciary, on every issue? No. I mean, have we forgotten about the political adultery with the budget bill? And as we speak, they're concocting amnesty on the omnibus bill. So, you know, but but the problem is, I, I looked at the CPAC convention, I was saying to myself, there's no way to talk over this. Because I hear it, I hear it from friends that don't, you know, listen to the conservative conscience. Um, they don't understand what's going on. And on a very superficial level, we're always going to have these quasi-cultural flashpoints with the NFL and standing for the national anthem where there's always two sides. And it's always, oh, man, look, you know, sure glad we're winning and not the Democrats because this would happen. And it's true. But at the same time, they're moving us farther to the left. Because the more extreme things they throw at us and the more they succeed in it, the few things they don't exceed at will take that as an amazing victory and use that as progress, but really it's a ratchet. You're only going in one direction. The question is how quickly. And, and that's what we're seeing across the board. And before I get to the courts, I just want to note on guns. Guns is a great issue. Guns is objectively, you know, I told you before, a friend of mine asked me, is there anything we've done on a federal level when Republicans are in charge that you're so proud of you want to shout from the rooftops? Something transformational we've accomplished in your lifetime, and I really cannot think of it. Guns is objectively one of the only issues where we've actually moved the country to the right on. Not really at a federal level. We've done nothing to get rid of gun-free zones and things like that, national right to carry, but on a state level, all the right-to-carry laws we've had since the 90s, on a state level— We've genuinely moved to the right. That, that's the one issue where we've really, you know, there's something about owning a gun that is really empowering that once people got used to it in the culture, you can't take that away. And we've really succeeded on that. And officially, almost every Republican is pro-gun. The problem is, what you're seeing is even on that issue now, they're going backwards. Despite the fact that over the past week, it's come out that the entire liberal narrative and politicization of Parkland is a complete hoax, that rather than this being inherently a gun problem, was an FBI problem, a sheriff's department problem. They were notified, what, 43 times in total, um, 18 times that, that, that was pretty much about a, a warning about a school shooting. All sorts of craziness. Now there were four deputies that were on scene and didn't rush into the building. 
And Republicans won't take the news and launch a counterattack. And pass legislation getting rid of gun-free zones, having right to carry. Instead, they're maniacally obsessed with this. And Trump also, he's half on message, half off message. So we're, we're about to head backwards on the one issue we succeeded on. So nowhere is this more evident than with the courts. And I'm pulling my hair out. Everyone's sitting there with this talking point from Trump to Pence to every conservative talk radio show host, every conservative writer, and every figure out there. We got Neil Gorsuch on the court, and we're, we appointed a record number of circuit court judges to the appeals courts in the first year in office. And I don't even know where to begin with that. Meanwhile, the courts are worse than ever. We're getting shellacked on every issue. The election no longer matters. The 2016 election was nullified. Every See, it's not just that the courts are becoming even more radical in civil disobedience and uh, undermining statute, undermining the Constitution. What's a federal power they give to the states? What's a state power they give to the feds? What's an individual right they read out? What's ant- antithetical to natural law they read into the Constitution? It's worse than that. There's a trend that they're now taking Obama's executive actions, some of which were discretionary, meaning you can't, you may do it or may not do it, some of which were downright lawless against statute, and saying that Trump must continue his policies. We're seeing this on immigration, on the the legal amnesty. We're seeing this on transgender in the military. We're seeing this on a number of regulations environmental and energy regulations. We're seeing this on the contraception mandate. We're seeing this on Obama concocted a number of programs for family planning to give grant funding to these uh, Planned Parenthood and similar type of organizations. And, you know, Trump just was going to discontinue it. And they're saying, no, you got to continue it. Meaning things that never existed in statute or are downright against statute in some cases never existed from 1789 until pretty much the last year or two of Obama's administration, they're now saying is the law of the land and Trump must continue that. There are no words in the English language to describe how radical that is and how much of a constitutional crisis we are facing with that. And yet they're like, look, we're fixing the courts. Meanwhile, as listeners to conservative conscious, you guys know this from reading all my writings Most of the judges Trump is appointing, and again, this is not his fault. He's doing what he can, but appointing better judges is not going to help. There's 12 reasons. You could Google 12 reasons why the judiciary is irremediably broken. I give 12 reasons why just appointing better judges will not work, and I'm proved right every day, and we're going to get into that. But they're mainly filling vacancies left by conservative judges on – circuits that the left is not using. So what the left is doing is they're taking all of the picture, all of the aforementioned policies I just talked about, very important issues. They're national in scope. So what the left is doing under our prevailing erroneous judicial system is forum shopping to the most radical district within the most radical circuits. So they're automatically, no matter what they do, they could say, Every conservative woman needs to be raped, and the court will, will say, yeah, go do it. Anything they want, they'll, these judges will give to them, and then they're going to win the appeal because they're not going to go to the Fifth Circuit, one of the circuits that Trump is really you know, kind of making impact on. It really already was a conservative circuit. They're not going to go to the Fifth, you know, Texas, Louisiana, that, that area. They're going to go to the Fourth, 
the Ninth, the Third, the D.C. Circuit, and several others, but mainly those. And then they have the district judges place a nationwide injunction instantaneously, immediately on everything Trump does. And then what's happening is they win the appeal, obviously, and the Supreme Court, and this is John Roberts' capricious nature, and I say John Roberts because it takes four judges to grant appeal, five to win, four to grant an appeal. So at the best, we have Clarence Thomas, Alito, and, and Gorsuch, but that's it. We cannot grant, we are not granted what's called cert. We're not granted the appeal. So most of the time they let it stand. The few times they take up the case, they kind of do a split the baby on part of the injunction and it goes back to the lower courts like we saw with the so-called travel bans and they pick up where they left and they keep disregarding what the Supreme Court just said and then they let it go on. Here we are 13 months into Trump's travel ban and he can't enforce basic sovereignty, Article 2 and Article 1 delegated powers that are pursuant to 200 years of settled case law. Oh, don't worry, the Supreme Court will overturn it. They're not. So I've written a number of articles on this recently. You had last week another gun case where Clarence Thomas called out his fellow justices that the lower courts are literally gutting Heller, siding with the dissent in Heller, and the Supreme Court just lets it go. So we're caught in this funny dynamic here that there's two realities. There's the conservative talking point about how great Trump is appointing all these judges, and then the reality that those judges are meaningless based on what the le- the system the left has created for themselves and that we allow it to go through. In other words, what I mean by that is the notion that you could grant standing to anyone. Everything's a valid case of controversy. We let that slip. The notion that you could forum shop. The notion that a district judge could issue a nationwide injunction. The notion that a judge can get involved in immigration policy. And the notion that no matter what a district judge does, the other two branches and the conservative movement and the conservative legal profession will regard that as the law of the land and you have to follow it. You're done. There's nothing to talk about. Why are we having all these fights? The courts are deciding everything and against us. It's this this morphine. Oh, look at all the judges we appoint. First of all, it's stupid. You're right. On some measure, it's more than Obama did in the first term, but Obama really caught off on very quickly in the subsequent years and remade the bench. So, you know, yeah, 11 circuit judges is more than nine, but it's not a lot. And if you look circuit by circuit, I'm evidently the only one who actually bothers to look at the details. It's not making a difference. I don't say this to bash Trump. He, you know, the vacancies are the ones that exist and he's trying to fill them. You know, and also just the fact that not all these judges are going to be that great. I got news for you. You know, Judge William Pryor, who's like the pride of the conservative legal movement, and they, they want him as the next Supreme Court justice. He sits on the 11th Circuit. He just issued a terrible ruling, basically calling the Jefferson County uh, School District a racist for wanting, wanting to start their own school and, you know, getting involved in local matters. Um you know, and that's the funny thing with the high, with the federal courts, the higher federal courts. Either way, conservatives lose out. The courts are a one-way street and a dead end for us. What I mean by that is if something is a state issue, they'll say, oh, no, we don't, we don't want to get involved. But then if conservatives do something on a state level, they'll get involved. You know what I mean? You know, it's interesting um, with the Pennsylvania 
redistricting case. It was a state Supreme Court that was lawless and nullified law. So Republicans in Pennsylvania appealed to the, the federal Supreme Court, and they're like, oh, we don't want to take this up. Uh, very deferential to state courts. Lo and behold, the funny thing is, um, you know, guess what? In North Carolina, when the state Supreme Court upheld the Republican maps on two occasions, the federal courts had no problem getting involved, including conservative justices. So let, let's just leave it at that. And by the way, I see the Supreme Court just took up another case on Eighth Amendment, you know, basically trying to invalidate uh, death penalty as a violation of, you know, cruel and unusual punishment. Um, another case where local courts issue a, a, a ruling and federal, federal courts get involved. So again, they'll get involved when they want to. It's all one directional. We lose out every time. So what happened to punctuate this case, this crisis, this trend of how the left is able to forum shop and shut down our sovereignty, security, society, system of governance, Trump's entire administration with the drop of a hat of a district judge, or I should say the drop of a pink hat from a district judge, and then the Supreme Court just lets it go through and the Supreme Court, you know, refuses to respond. Let's update for those of us that, that aren't following what exactly went on today. So I started off the week. I have a lot of my, my list of articles I need to write are really growing. I don't have enough time. But I wanted to get to um, on Thursday, another example of this, a federal district judge, of course, in California, put an injunction on Trump's delaying of the Obama's methane capture um, regulation. Now, basically, as you all know, as part of Obama's global warming agenda, he just legislated from the White House. He said that we need to regulate all sorts of things that statute never permitted to regulate, and they're job killers, they're, they're horrible. And one of them was this methane regulation basically placing massive restrictions on methane emissions from um, oil and gas. I mean, it's a big deal with natural gas because that's the main component of, of, of gas production. And, you know, of course, given that natural gas is America's own miracle and just doing amazing things for the job market and economy, of course, that had to be crushed. And in, you know, again, the final, this is one of the kind of final few months of Obama's administration where he just lawlessly promulgated the regulation. Now, the thing about this regulation is, and, and I'll have the article on this in show notes, he had the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, under the auspices of the Interior Department, promulgate the regulation. The reason was because he he was doing it on for, for gas production on federal lands. So, you know, BLM has jurisdiction over federal lands. Now, here's the problem. Even if you want to say that the Clean Air Acts and the Clean Water Acts passed three decades ago, long before the global warming agenda was ever on the minds of Congress when they passed it, that somehow the EPA has authority to regulate you know, these promulgate these um, emission uh, regulations on emissions for uh, under the guise of stopping global warming, as Anthony Kennedy saddled us with with the EPA v. Massachusetts in 2000 and what was it, 2007, 2008? 
um, there's no statute on the books that you could ever pin on the BLM. You cannot tell me that the BLM has authority to regulate emissions. They, they, they just don't. There's just no statute. You can't point to the Clean Air Act because it, it, that authorized the EPA, not the BLM. Right? It was completely lawless. I don't care if you're an environmentalist, if you love the regulation. We're not debating here the policy. We're debating whether Obama had legal authority to do that. He clearly did not. But that's irrelevant. He's no longer president. Whether he had the authority to do it, you certainly cannot tell me that you must do it. Trump came along and said, let's delay it so we could study what's going on. And Judge William Ulrich of the Northern District of California, and that's he was an Obama donor, Obama appointee, who, by the way, declared sanctuary cities. Not only did he give standing to San Francisco to sue for federal funding, but he actually placed a nationwide injunction on all of America that all sanctuary cities are entitled to federal law enforcement grants. So that same judge put a nationwide injunction on Trump's delay, forcing Trump to continue a lawless regulation of his predecessor. So I, I started writing an article about this. And, you know, I was going to make a number of points. And basically how the stupid libertarian legal movement, because it's not a conservative legal movement, we don't have one. They don't care about society. They don't care about immigration. We get that. So they're not bothered by judicial tyranny, but they're so into regulations. And when we agree, we're on the same side on that issue. So I said, look, I mean, if you don't watch, if you don't deal with the judiciary, what's one of the big talking points about Trump? Probably the biggest success that everyone's pointing to. Look at all the regulations he got rid of. Now, again, let me just point out that part of the problem that our people miss is a sense of proportion and context that it's like the left will get into power for 10 years and move this country a thousand light years to the left. We'll get in there and tinker around the edges like, oh, Daniel, look at the progress. You're right. Trump has gotten rid of more regulations than anyone. The problem is Obama promulgated more regulations than anyone. So it's all relative. Again, this is not a rip on Trump. He's doing what he can on that um, front. And I applaud him. But but don't fool yourselves as to where we are standing on a public policy issue in terms of broad progress, who's moving the ball down the field, which side of the field are we on? We're at our one-yard line. We're, we're pinned against the end zone here on every policy issue. We're going backwards fundamentally. But here's the point. The courts are now blocking a number of these regulation, of these suspension of regulations. That's a huge problem. So I wrote this article as a means of raising raising awareness. And I want you guys to write this down. I want you guys to call your members of Congress and take note here. Our buddy Dave Bratton, we're going to have him on our show soon. H.R. 4927. He introduced that H.R. 4927 legislation that will explicitly bar district judges from implementing nationwide injunctions on policy. So this is really a very modest proposal, but if you, we would actually pass this, it would stop 90% of the problems with judicial tyranny. Um, it would stop this forum shopping business. So basically, it doesn't strip the courts of any issue. They could still issue their lawless rulings, but the rulings wouldn't have the effect of vetoing national policy. It would just apply either in their city, that jurisdiction, like San Francisco in the case of this judge, or it would... Um, 
it would only apply to that plaintiff, which is really how it should be. That that's what the judicial power is, as we've said many times, is to grant relief to a, a legitimate plaintiff. And by the way, an environmental legal defense group is not a, a legitimate plaintiff, but that's a that's a different story. Should never get standing. At least not as liberally as they granted. But I digress. Anyway, his bill is very important. It's facially neutral politically, right? It doesn't take away marriage or immigration like we want to do. It's very modest. It, this would apply equally when you have a Democrat president. Republicans want to form shop to put nationwide injunctions on what they're doing. Okay? So this is something we should be pushing. H.R. 4927. Look it up. It's, it's literally three lines, the bill. Very simple. So I was promoting, I wanted to raise awareness that Dave Brad just introduced this bill and how much we really need it. Because otherwise, any district judge could just shut down the agenda. Because keep in mind, these policies are all nationwide in scope. They're national. It's a national environmental um, regulation. So the courts will just let, the, the left is like, okay, we'll go to a California judge and get a nationwide injunction. Done. Finished. And it takes forever for the Supreme Court to to bring it up, if ever. As the ink was drying on this piece, as we're pressing the publish button, da-da-da-da, the news comes out, the Supreme Court refuses to grant the expedited appeal to overturn the judicial amnesty. So as you well know, what is probably the most lawless opinion ever issued in our nation's history, two judges, William Aslop, or Alsop, in San Francisco, and Nicholas Garafas in New York, said that Trump must continue Obama's illegal amnesty, the worst violation of national sovereignty, of statute ever. Um, and, and, and again, remember what that means. It doesn't just mean not deporting them. It means you must actively issue social security cards, work permits, and by extension, refundable tax credits. You know, it's, it's, it's uh, the time of year where the IRS is you know, sending back credits, your money's going to illegal aliens because of an illegal executive amnesty now mandated by an illegal judicial amnesty. So I have an article coming out, and hopefully it will be up by the time, you know, this posts, giving a number of reasons why the Supreme Court is so radical. So again, this is the most insane thing. And everyone was like, okay, the, the, the Supreme Court's going to overturn this. I mean, this much you can't. I mean, this is nuts. This, the, this is just nuts. Cannot, simply cannot go through. We can't, no way. But the problem is, again, notice they're going to radical district judges in radical circuits. So they automatically win the appeal. So the government has to spend months on the appeals knowing they're going to lose no matter the veracity of their arguments. And this is nonsense. This is an emergency. And ideally, we would have a government, we would have a Congress and an executive branch that would finally stand up to a freaking district judge. I said this many times. A district judge does, is, is below, not above, not even on par, below the other two branches of government. They are created by Congress, not the Constitution. They cannot veto a national policy, period. But it's worse than that. They're not placing, I've said this many times, the difference between judicial review and judicial supremacy. 
they're not placing a negative on a positive of the administration. They're placing a policy, a, a positive on a negative. They are trying to force an executive branch to issue work permits and visas to illegals in contravention to statute. They cannot force an executive branch to use their executive powers in contravention to the most foundational established laws as confirmed by the Constitution and 200 years of uninterrupted Supreme Court precedent. You cannot do that. You know, a lot of people ask me, Daniel, are you suggesting Trump shouldn't listen to the courts? That's not even, first of all, yes, but this is not even not listening. Not listening is when they place a negative on your positive. You want to throw someone in jail and they grant that guy relief and you put him in jail anyway. Here, they're saying, hey, cough up visas. No, you cough up visas. You go do it, judge. You go issue a visa. You go issue a work permit. Oh, I forgot. You're a court. You don't have that power. We have that power. So shut up and mind your own business. You don't have that power. But God forbid, should we ever have the other branches pushing back? It's very clear they're not going to do it. They're not going to do it. I've come to the conclusion that there is literally literally nothing even a district judge can do or say that the other branches of government, the body politic, and the conservative movement will not regard as the unassailable law of the land. Fine. So the next best thing was to petition for an expedited appeal to the Supreme Court and go to the Supreme Court and say, look, you know where the Ninth Circuit is on this already. This is so absurd. you got to shut this down. So they did that. And that's where the Supreme Court came in today and said, no, go through the regular appeal. It was processed. There's no reason it shouldn't work. Let me tell you something. Even from conservatives, I'm hearing two things, and they're very dangerous. And then I'm going to tie it back into this general political morphine business of how we've just all lost our minds and lost our sensitivity as to how radical and how destroyed our system of government is and our people are just fighting over little straws of success in the midst of, you know, again, one step forward, 10 steps back. Some conservatives are saying this is a good thing politically because it gives, you know, they're about to cave on amnesty. So this will, you know, give us more time to fight it and they won't feel as pressured to do something stupid, like to put it in an omnibus bill. And then B, they're trying to defend, well, the Supreme Court, you know, they didn't issue a ruling on the merits. They'll still likely overturn it. But, you know, they're just saying go through the regular appeals. Let me address the latter point first and and work backwards. Let's remember something here. The Supreme Court justices don't view the role of the judiciary the way I do. They view the judiciary as supreme to the other branches. So they know very well that because of the tyranny of the lower courts, the other branches are, are going to regard that as the law and they're going to continue implementing things that are lawless. Let me tell you something. If the Supreme Court is supreme over the other two branches, if the lower courts are now supreme over the other two branches, well, by golly, the Supreme Court is supreme over the lower courts. So they should enact and wield their legitimate supremacy, the one place where the supremacy is really supreme, over the lower federal courts. They have an, none of this business, well, let's go through the process. If you have a district judge engaging in civil disobedience, violent, the most insane opinion imaginable, saying that a president, you know, we haven't had DACA from 1789 until, 
you know, 2014 and a president comes and does it in contravention. And again, this is the most lawless act of a president imaginable, imaginable, giving affirmative benefits to illegal aliens against the will of the people, against statute. And, and, and the judge uses – and it, it's not just the opinion. They called Trump a racist. They used political arguments. It was extremely capricious from head to toe. You have an obligation as the Supreme Court to step in if you're really supreme. You can't have it both ways. You're supreme over the other branches, but you're not even supreme over your freaking branch. you got to patrol the courts. So don't give me this business. Yeah, don't worry, Daniel. They'll overturn. They're really with us. But, you know, you got to go through the – no, no, no. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. Now, there, there's no, there was no dissent issued here, so it's unclear who really wanted to do it and who didn't. But at the very minimum, it's clear there weren't four. And it's clear at the very least Kennedy and Roberts were being jerks. And that's a problem. You can't watch a lower court judge do something that destructive, and it's not some sort of abstract issue. This is very consequential. You're allowing foreign nationals to put down roots, get work permits, refundable tax. That's a very big deal. you got to stop that. You can't just, oh, no, whatever. But there's, there's a bigger point. There's a bigger point. There was a sub-case involved in this case, not really a sub-case, but as a part of this case, not only did the, did the judge mandate that you know, judicial amnesty, they forced Trump to give over all of his political and legal advice from his just cabinet and advisors and White House staff regarding DACA. I mean, th- this is nuts. And then, so, th- so then the Trump administration appealed that aspect of the case, not the underlying merits of judicial amnesty, but the fact that he had to disclose the um, information. And of course, it has to go to the Ninth Circuit. So the Ninth Circuit was like, eh, 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 eh. they do their thing. So they took it to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court, nine to nothing, slapped down the judge and really rebuked him. So you, this is not a normal case. He's shown that he has no regard for law and that the appeals court cannot be counted upon to rectify it in this very case. But no, they won't take it up. In addition, the Ninth Circuit... And district judges within the Ninth Circuit were already rebuked by the Supreme Court in the travel ban case, which is somewhat sim- similar subject matter, and they're still not listening. This is the game the Supreme Court is playing, by the way. You know, it just, it's just inexcusable. It makes no sense. Let me tell you something. If you had a conservative district judge that would completely disregard Roe v. Wade or Obergefell, Something like that. Just do something completely insane. I can't think of something more insane on the right, equivalent to on the left, mandating that a president illegally grant amnesty to foreign nationals. I can't think of it. But let's just say a conservative judge would say that a president must give taxpayer funding to citizens to purchase guns. Okay, let's just say the judge said that. Do you think for a minute the Supreme Court will say, well, let's go through the normal process. They would slap that down in three seconds and like reprimand the guy and take you know action through the administration, administrative offices of the judiciary to rebuke the guy. Heck, they'd take up the case without a petition for appeal. 
they'd take it on their own. Except, as we well know, conservative judges would never do that. They obsequiously follow Supreme Court precedent even when it's wrong. And, and, and le- yet le- leftist lower courts could do whatever they want. Because the Supreme Court is trying to tip their... See, the game with the Supreme Court is they care about their image a little bit more. So they're not going to issue so many radical opinions. But the, their way of doing it is allowing the lower courts to be their forward advancing guard. It's the same thing with the guns. The gun, the, all, all the gun cases. But this is the point that everyone is missing. It's radically insane. It's beyond insane. What are we even fighting for anymore? I don't get it. I just don't get it. And finally, there's one other aspect, and we're going to get to this more in a minute, that you already had the Fifth Circuit, a few years, you know, another, another circuit, say the opposite, that, which is the truth, that a president cannot enact executive amnesty. Now, it wasn't in the exact same case. It was a little different population, DAPA instead of DACA, but it's the same rationale. And in fact, that was what actually, because Trump was not planning on getting rid of DACA, you know, to fulfill his promise. What pushed him was Ken Paxton, the attorney general of Texas's uh, threat to take it to a conservative circuit and go the other way. So this is nuts. You have one circuit saying the Supreme Court's got to step in. But no. And then finally, we have, like I said, we have conservatives saying, Daniel, this is great strategically because I know the courts are crazy, but at least, you know, Republicans were going to cave, so this gives us extra time. I've never heard of a more counterintuitive argument. It's like saying, well, I'm glad, you know, they slit our throat now because we, you know, we might have slit our throat later. We might have had legislative amnesty, so it's good we have judicial amnesty. I mean, What? Do you understand how harmful that is to the republic? The fact that the Supreme Court is now at least temporarily, even if it's only temporarily, okay with something this insane, the message that sends to the lower courts on immigration and a load of other issues to continue engaging in the resistance. And that as a movement, we're not going to stand up to it. And rather than stand up to it, we're going to codify and legitimize it for political strategy. Well, now the deadline is not March 5th. What do you mean the deadline? You can't do amnesty. Well, the court said you could. The court said you have to. Well, since when did we believe in that? So what should we do? Number one, obviously, Dave Bratt's legislation. Ending the practice of nationwide injunctions, with, which will stop the forum shopping. And therefore, they won't be able to. So then the passivity of the Supreme Court is going to work in our favor now. Because... Now with the lower courts, you know, okay, you can issue a judgment to Juan Gonzalez, you know, the third for amnesty, but you can't strike down a nationwide policy. They're not going to be able to get that. So then, you know, the Supreme Court would downright, I don't even know how you have an appeal because they'd win the case, but they'd only get a judgment on one plaintiff at a time. Number two, obviously Congress needs to defund DACA, but of course they're not going to do it. So at least, at the very least, the conservatives, the few that are there, should demand that in the omnibus bill coming up, at the very least, and and listen to this political strategy, ideally we should defund all of DACA, but at the very least, put in a rider saying the following, no funding can go towards refundable tax credits for DACA recipients. 
Here's why this is so important. Democrats tell us that DACA recipients are amazing, including, by the way, this uh, 21-year-old DACA recipient who's evidently at a high school, an American high school. We spoke about that a lot last week um, and threatened to shoot up the school. But she's a valedictorian nonetheless. Um, They're all valedictorians, and they're all entrepreneurs, and they're all the greatest human beings alive. Is it time we call them out on the talking point? Okay, so then you should have no problem ensuring that they don't get refundable tax credits, which is nothing more than welfare because they're, you know, these guys are, you know, starting businesses left and right, and they're going to be certainly earning too much money to get them anyway, so it won't affect them, right? Number three, pressure needs to mount on Ken Paxton to finally go through with his promise and go on offense. Now sue the Trump administration for following DACA when it's illegal and get the Fifth Circuit to tell Trump you can't do it and apply it nationwide. And what would be so good about this is it would this would expose the crisis and absurdity of judicial supremacy, particularly at a forum shopped lower court level and nationwide injunctions. We'd fight forum shopping and nationwide injunctions with forum shopping and nationwide injunctions. And it would prove to everyone why philosophically and legally district courts don't have the power because what could come out is one judge could say, tell the president, you must do this and I'm applying it outside of my district nationwide. Another judge could say, you cannot do this. You mustn't do it. Meaning it's not a middle ground like, you, you know, one's discretionary. Like you, you may or may not if you want. One says you have to. No, one says you can't. One says you have to. And like, oh, well, actually, you follow the law. You, you don't, the judges don't decide that. That's the best I could come up with for now. But anyway, just to close, we now have 540,000 amnesty work permits going to be issued to foreign nationals because of a, a former president's lawlessness continuing after we won an election because of a district judge. And you're telling me, Daniel, we're winning so much, the conservative movement's as vibrant as ever. Oh, and vote Republican because Gorsuch, by the way, he's been issuing some funny opinions. It's a case of whatever, allowing overriding state criminal justice laws and allowing uh, people criminals who plead guilty to appeal even after pleading guilty. There's some funny things that, I mean, he signed, that was a six to three opinion he signed on to with Roberts and the four clowns. Um, Kennedy was with Alito and Thomas on the other side. You know, look, he's good. I'm just saying he's not quite as good as Scalia. And on immigration, we spoke about that before. There's some problems with him. So, you know, and either way, he's just filling Scalia's seat. And and, and this is the, my punchline. People think that we're one Supreme Court justice away from the promised land. No, we're not. There's more or less basically a six to three liberal majority on the court now. And Gorsuch does have some quirks, but I'm including him in the three conservatives. So even if Kennedy somehow retired, and I don't think there's any more, I think there's no longer any clear signal he is. In fact, he hired you know clerks for next term. Um, it's not going to help. Roberts will move even further to the left then because he does not want to upset the balance of the liberal legal profession. And, uh, you know, you see that even... And, and the lower, again, the lower courts, 
as long as they're allowed to forum shop, we're not even going to get a, a, a circuit split to get the Supreme Court to take up our cases. Because they won't go to the fifth and eighth circuits. That's the beauty of it, of, of the game they're playing. No one understands this. I could do this on many other talking points to demonstrate why what you think is progress, really we've moved backwards. It's one step forward and 10 steps back. But I hope at least on immigration, on the, the well, the courts and immigration, but mainly the courts, you see why we're really moving way backwards beyond what's fathomable. And yet we think this is great. I don't do this to dispirit you. I, I have a lot of ideas I think we need to push. I'm still pushing my Bill of Rights, and one of them will be to take politics out of the courts. Take political decisions and political questions out of the jurisdiction of the courts. But again, you cannot pursue a solution if you refuse to recognize the problem. And worse, dope yourself up on political morphine and think you're doing so great. You know, Let me just close with this. I'm just taking a swig of water here, losing my voice. I'm so hoarse. Um, you're going to hear this particularly today and this week. Every, for every 100 cases we lose at the Supreme Court that destroys our country or that they never take up but the lower courts are destroying us, we win one case. And that always shields people's eyes like, oh, look at great. They love judicial supremacy. Once in a while, we benefit from judicial supremacy. So you have this case with union dues. Um, where, as you well know, government uses the boot of government to force workers to basically take their pursuit of happiness, their paycheck, and hand it to the Democrat circuitous money laundering operation for their campaigns, a.k.a. union dues, mandatory union dues. And it appears that there will be a 5-4 decision against that practice. And, you know, that, that that's nice. If we're going to allow that to somehow, you know, overlook the kill shots on our sovereignty and society, it's ridiculous. And again, as this demonstrates, even when we win an offen- a judicial offensive victory, when our side sues their laws and somehow the Supreme Court strikes down, it's ephemeral. It's fleeting. Look at Heller. Here we are eight years later. It's gone. So you know what's going to happen? In that particular case, they'll say you don't have to pay union dues, and the blue states will keep fighting it, will keep implementing the laws, will keep taking it to court. The lower courts will say, no, this is different. They'll make a distinction and won't apply. I forgot the name of this case. I'm losing it. But um, they won't apply the precedent just like they won't apply Heller. They'll cite from the dissent, and the Supreme Court will not bring it up. That's what happens. When they win victories, they win them forever, and they metastasize. When we win victories, they don't go anywhere. We got to push wholesale judicial reform. But as a first, we got to get off the judicial, the political morphine. Wake up and smell the judicial tyranny. Folks, thanks for listening. God bless y'all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.